Hosea chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 2 of chapter 2, reading through verse 13. You'll note, of course, if you have a Bible like mine, the the words of this section are all indented. Uh, That is to highlight for you, to tell you that this is poetical, which means it's very difficult to translate, for one, uh, for another, it doesn't mean that every word is important, every word's inspired, but it does resonate a theme, and the theme is one of a false sense of security that the people of God have experienced, are, are experiencing at this particular time due to their idolatry. So I'm going to read verses 2 through 13 of the second, of this second chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give attention to it. Hosea chapter 2, beginning with verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst upon her children also. I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my husband, my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness and the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. This is the word of the living and true God. I don't remember what year it was. It was a number of years ago when the stock market had what we would describe as a, a, a crash, a word that financial people will use when things are not going well in the economy, especially on Wall Street. It was that year, again, not remembering exactly when it was, when many people in the United States who had placed their hope, their comfort, their trust in their money, maybe put a different way, in their 401k plans, found themselves losing a substantial amount of it. People worried, they fretted, they struggled, they grew anxious because of all the investment that they had made over the years of their labors and work were now eradicated 
due to the, climatic, the cataclysmic fall of Wall Street, whatever year it was in. Many people put their trust in many things. You do too. The question, of course, and the question that's pressing us in these words here in Hosea 2 is what are exactly and who exactly are you placing your trust in? It is easy for us, isn't it? It's easy for all of us to, as Calvin puts it, and you probably grow weary of hearing this quote, but it's probably one of the most common quotes that Calvin at least attributed to Calvin. We are idle factories. We crank them out, and we put hope and dependence upon them. No, it may not be something in your house in which you light a candle to every single day and genuflect in front of as you leave the door to go to your job or come home from your job at the end of the day. It may not be some pole that sits in the middle of your kitchen. But we have them. We are sinful people. And if we're not careful, we will become dependent upon them. We will become a a people that place their trust in them in such a way that it seeks to supplant, and it always does do this, seeks to supplant the rightful reign of the true God of heaven and earth. Your idols may be your money. You may look at your bank account and find and draw comfort from it and say to yourself, well, I'm good for the rest of my life. i got nothing to worry about. Everything is going to be just fine into my old age and everything is going to be rosy and peachy and my retirement is going to be great as I sit on the beaches and drink lemonade and enjoy the blue skies and sunshine. Maybe your trust is in your marriage. And you place all of your hope and comfort there and nothing else. That's the, that's the end-all, be-all of your existence. Maybe it's in your children. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's some other thing. There are many different ways in which we can be led astray by these things that are, in fact, good things and forget, even as the people of old forgot, that the good things that come to us in this life highlighted here by these very necessary items in the passage, the flax, the oil, the drink, the wool, the bread, the water. These things, they come from the hand of the living and true God. They come secured by virtue of the fact that Jesus Christ has paved the way that he might then usher in the blessing of his Father into the lives of his people. All of that we enjoy in this world, all the things, all the benefits, all the wonderful blessings of our lives that we have, our marriages, our children, our jobs, our finances, and and on it goes. It comes from him. Thus, we don't put our trust in our money, for that could be gone tomorrow. We, We don't put our trust in our marriages. That could be gone tomorrow, too. We don't put our trust in our children. We don't put our trust in our jobs. We don't put our trust in these fleeting things of this world because they could be gone in an instant. The people of old here in this passage and really through the bulk of the prophecy of Hosea are being indicted by the God of heaven because they have placed their security in all of the wrong things. In this case, they've placed their security in the bales of the land, the false deities, The gods that they were warned and told to flee and run away from, not place trust and hope in. They're there, but avoid them. Don't don't place your hope in them. They cannot do anything for you. They won't do anything for you. 
And in fact, the opposite is true. What they will do is bring the judgment of God on you. And here in the second chapter, Hosea is writing. He is, in a sense, he is writing, but God is speaking, as you can plainly tell, uh, through this poetical section of this second chapter. He is anticipating the ultimate demise of the northern kingdom. He is projecting now forward after having just told them in the verses that precede this chapter, beginning in verse 10 through verse 1 of chapter 2, that regardless of what comes, regardless of the circumstances, I will indeed restore you. I will bring you back. I will woo you to myself. But before that happens, judgment will fall. And the judgment is their fault because they have defied the God of heaven. Now, we have a tendency to think in our world today, and, and we don't see this kind of judgment. We don't see nations rushing in to take us, take us out of this room and, and hold us captive in some foreign country. And uh, we don't see meteors falling out of the sky to judge our idolatry. But God is not any more pleased, any less pleased, more pleased. He's not happy with it, regardless of the year in which it occurs. It is an abomination for the people of God to place their comfort, their hope, their security in anything other than the God of heaven. Here in this passage we find the disciplining hand of God and in it, mixed in it. If you read it carefully, you will see the loving hand of God as well. I want to highlight that in a few moments. Now the context is, as I've already mentioned, Hosea is projecting forward. He's looking at the end-all, be-all, the 722 B.C. judgment of the northern kingdom into the hands of the Assyrians. But it doesn't end there, as we've already noted in the last sermon in this series. God will not let them go. He is going to be faithful to them, regardless of their faithfulness, their faithlessness. He's going to continue to love them, regardless of their adultery. He is going to continue to be faithful and good to them, regardless of their poor, wicked behavior. And aren't you thankful that that's the kind of God you serve? Think of it. If God were to measure your sin, if he was to keep a list of your iniquities, how, just how long do you think that list would look, be? I don't think this room could hold it. I don't know if the world could. But God is gracious. And even in the most vilest of sins, and the violation of the first and second commandment of his law, even then he holds out to them hope in the face of it. But before we can get to the good news, we have to go through the bad news. And the bad news is God is angry with his covenant people. He is angry because they have rejected him. And they have placed their hope in all the wrong places. And we need to be careful that we too are not that way. So this evening I want to show you that a loving, caring God 
calls his people from lives of idolatry and false security. I want to show you here in this poetical section of Hosea 2 that God is calling his people once again. That itself is a gracious act. He could have just said, forget it, I'm done. I've said enough, I'm not saying anymore. Go do what you want. No. To the voice of the prophet, many prophets, he calls his people, as a loving, caring God, calls his people from this life of idolatry and false security. Three points as we consider this poetical section in Hosea 2. Again, I'm going to cover really in summary this section because, again, it's not necessary to deal with every pedantic word. But the thrust of the section is what is most in view. Three points. First, we'll consider a call to repent of idolatry. You find that in the first, in verses 2 through 4. And then a call to repent of false hopes and security. That's verse 5. And then a charge from a caring, faithful God, verses 6 through 13. Let's first consider this call to repent of idolatry. There is a charge. It comes right in the beginning, there in verse 2. Again, it's poetical. But it's there, nonetheless, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. That is to say, they are not behaving as the covenant people of God ought to behave. They are acting contrary to the covenant obligations that they have been so plainly warned about and told that they might experience the blessing or they may experience the cursing. Here they're experiencing the cursing because they have defied the living God. They have turned away from him. And in this poetical way of describing it, he describes it in familial language. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, that is exactly how the God of heaven refers to his people. He as their husband and they as his bride. Now that's not, shouldn't be all that shocking to you because when we get into the New Testament, we see very much the same language by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 when he refers to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as the very bride of Christ, he their husband. But he charges the bride. He charges his bride with idolatry. He charges them with having false gods in their midst. That she should put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Again, poetical, figurative language to, to press home the point that this idolatry, this adultery is the idolatry of the false gods of the land. And it's repugnant in the nostrils of the living and true God. Many of you in this room are married. Not all of you. Someday you will be, probably, maybe, if the Lord wills. But how would you respond to your spouse committing adultery? You certainly wouldn't be happy about it. You certainly would be jumping up and down for glee. You wouldn't be encouraging it. But God goes further than just discouraging it. He offers to them hope in the, in, in the face of it. He didn't just leave his bride to their own sinful devices. He compels them and continues to compel them 
through this prophecy of Hosea, when, especially when we get into chapter 3, we're going to see that most plainly and clearly how the God of heaven, in spite of their sin and their adultery, He continues to woo them. He continues to court them. He continues to beg with them, pleading with them as the innocent party that they might turn away and return to the God of their fathers. But he has to charge them first. He charges them with having false gods. He gives to them a warning to repent or suffer the consequences of their sin. Now, we don't like to talk about these things. We don't, we don't like to refer to matters of consequence. We think that we can just sin with impunity, even as redeemed people. Children, you aren't able, I don't think, I think I know most of you and your parents, I don't think you're able to just do whatever you want to do in your home with impunity. That means without consequence. If you break the rules of the house, you'll probably hear about it. And if you don't, you should. The rules of the house have been broken. The familiar relationship has been shattered. The law of God has been, has been violated. And God, as a loving father, husband, is going to tell them, warn them of the consequences that will come if you, can, if you continue, if you persist in this way of living. And we know, based on the history of the northern kingdom, they did not listen. And they were eventually exiled by the Assyrian Empire. But God warns them, the consequences, repent or suffer the consequences. What are the consequences? Well, it's really interesting the way it's put here in this poetical way in verse 3, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness, make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. These are not pleasing words. The shame that would come if, if you were stripped naked by some oppressor and made to be paraded around in the streets. We think of the events that happened in the Middle East and what that wicked terrorist group had done to some of the women in that, in that awful event. And the shame and the horror that must have come to them as they were paraded around the streets as in the day they were born. God is telling them that he is going to bring shame upon them. He is using this language to show to them that they will be publicly exposed for their sin. It won't stay secret, and it's not secret to him. Oh, the rest of the world may be fooled. Others may be fooled, but God is not. He will expose them either today or in the day of judgment, and indeed he does expose it completely and entirely in 722 B.C. when he destroys the northern kingdom. You see, not even these people could hide from their sin. I can't hide from mine. You can't hide from yours. The call of every gospel sermon, every sermon that comes from this pulpit is to turn away from sin and look to Christ. You can't hide underneath in the cloak of darkness and think that you're somehow just going to coast along and get away with it. God loves you too much to let you get away with it. He loves these people too much to let them get away with it. He says, if you persist, if you continue, I'm going to expose you for all to see. I'm going to bring shame upon you unless you turn 
from your evil ways. He strips them naked. It's the same term used in Genesis 37. It's too bad we weren't reading Genesis 37 this evening for many reasons. You go home and read Genesis 36 out loud and and tell me how you did. Anyway, Genesis 37, verse 23. Really backing up to verse 22. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might escape him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors. This is not a pleasant act you know the story it's the story of joseph and his brothers and his brothers decide to throw him in a pit and they take that robe off that they despised they hated but they stripped him naked as he stood sat in that pit ashamed not because of anything he had done but because of the wicked acts of his brothers it is a shaming punishment that god threatens against the people for their idolatry Because they have chosen not the covenant blessing, but they have chosen the covenant curse. If you reject me, I will deal with you. Love me, reject me. Honor me, dishonor me. You see, God is concerned for not only their well-being, but he's concerned for his glory. These are his people. They belong to him. And he is bringing shame. They are bringing shame upon the God of heaven. Too often in our own lives, we fail to remember that. In our sin, in our persistence in sin, that we're not just offending our brothers and sisters, we're shaming Christ. We ought not do that. And so God gives to them this warning after having charged them with this idolatry. The consequences are obvious there. Look how he says it in verse 4. Upon her children also I will have no mercy. What? Yes, the future generations to come, if they persist in this idolatry and this, this Baal worship, not only will they suffer under the hands of a God who loves them, but so will their children and their children after them. This echoes the very warning that God gives in Exodus 20 and verse 4. That the sin will be passed on, not only to the par- from the parents, but from the parents to the children and their children after them. But remember the hope of it, that if they turn from these things, I will show them love to a thousand generations. There's an impact of their behavior. Mom and dad, there's impact on your children for your behavior. It will happen. How many times have you heard someone say, you're just like your mother? You're just like your father? I've heard that too many times. I don't think it's a, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. We tend to inherit the sins of our parents by example. God takes this seriously. He says, I'm going to bring this impact not only upon you, but upon your children. I'm not going to have any mercy. Why? Because they're children of whoredom. They too are falling into the wake, into the, the, the pattern of worshiping false gods. It's a consequence to future generations. This is a serious issue. So God charges them. He warns them of the consequences that will come. 
And then he calls them to repent. To repent of what? Verse 5. Of false hopes and security. Now that false hope and security, it's rooted in their idolatry. That's proof. This is where they're placing their trust in all the things that can never satisfy, can never help, can never hear, can never do anything. Notice what the prophet says in verse 5, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. Not only is the idolatry a shameful thing, but look what they're doing. For she said, I will go after my lovers. They're pursuing these things. This is active, not passive. They know that it's wrong. They know there's idolatry in their midst, and they continue to pursue these things. But worse than even that, if it could be worse, they attribute the blessings of this life, the good things, the things needful to live in this world, to the false gods of the land. Can anything be more repugnant than, therefore, in the nostrils of a holy God? It reminds me of the very event of Exodus 32, when the people of Israel made the golden calf, and then proclaimed so boldly that this is the God that brought them out of Egypt. Can anything be more horrific in the ears of the living and true God? They use this language, the prophet uses this language, the bread and the water. We get that part. We like bread, we like water. My wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. The things they need to live in this world, they are seeking in the gods that cannot satisfy them. And they're attributing these things to them instead of the God of heaven who really gave it to them. Put a different way, the people of Israel, the covenant people, are very thankless. Their idolatry has so skewed their ability to think correctly that they're not a thankful people. When we consider the world in which we live and we look around at all the people that have yet to name the name of Christ, maybe they never will. But look at the many things that the God of heaven has blessed them with. They still eat. I suspect many of them today had a meal or two or three. They have homes they live in. They have cars they drive. They have families. They have many blessings of this life. Where did it all come from? It came from the God of heaven. It didn't come from their own abilities and ingenuities. It didn't come from their false sense of security and hope and money and that which purchases those things. It came from the hand of God. And someday they're going to be reminded of that. They're going to be told that. You worshipped idols, and you never gave me the credit, the glory, because I'm the one who gave it to you. That's precisely what the prophet says in verse 8. And she, that is to say, the bride of God, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, 
which they then turned to use for the false gods of the land. There's a false hope in the people. Their hope is in that which can never satisfy, can never provide. There's a false security in the idols that will never alone bring peace. No, instead of peace, it's bringing nothing but judgment and chaos and war and catastrophe because they have rejected the one who has given them all of these things. Their hope is in the wrong place. Though they have been taught from birth, though they have heard the oracles of the prophets, though they have heard the stories of their fathers, they, have know, they know the, 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 the narrative accounts of the deliverance from Egypt and the wandering in the wilderness and the bringing to the promised land. They know these stories. They know who the true God of heaven is. They have rejected him and placed their hope in that which will never satisfy. We do that too. Every time we turn away from the Savior to the things of this world. The Apostle Paul tells us to set our minds on things above, not on things of this earth. Jesus himself says that we should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He says that in the face of what? The things that we need in this world. Because your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But you seek first his kingdom. The people here in Hosea's day, they are not seeking first the kingdom of God. They're seeking their kingdom. They're seeking the kingdom of God that can never satisfy, can never deliver, can never ever bring to them the things that they most definitely need. We too have a way of doing that. Idolatry in this life is often hard to detect. Again, we don't see it so overtly, do we? We don't have a golden calf sitting out front of the church building. Nor will we ever. I don't think. Pretty sure. We don't have them in our living rooms either. But we do have them in all sorts of ways if we're not careful. It's hard to detect at times. But God sees them. And because of his love for his people, he is going to work to expose them in your life. That you might get rid of them. That you might place your trust and hope only in him and nothing else. I wonder this evening as you leave this place and you go home and you think about idolatry. Not a pleasant subject, I recognize. The temptation is, going, is, is that you will say, I don't have any. And that may be true. But maybe you do. What kind of idols have you erected and have placed your trust and a false sense of security in the money, fame, your job, your position, things, your stuff? And the list is really endless. Brothers and sisters, understand that just like these people, those things will never bring you peace. They will never, the, the more idolatry you engage in, the more idolatry you're going to engage in. It's a never-ending cycle that never ever ends until it's broken. God wants to break it. 
He wants to terminate it. Not only for your sake, but for the generations of people to come. They can never provide peace. They can't provide security. You show me a golden calf that ever went to war against the enemies of God. It just sat there. It can't speak. It can't hear. It can't see. And it can't act. Neither can your money, your things, none of it. No peace, no security, and they certainly can't meet your needs. Because it is God who does that. And it's only God who can do that. It is only the God of heaven through His Son and all that He's accomplished that brings true peace into the heart and lives of restless people. Not a pseudo-peace, a false peace, a true peace, a real peace. The peace of conscience, for one. It is only God in heaven through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that brings us true security in this life. What kind of security? Not financial, necessarily. But a hope for the future. This world is not your home. Don't put your hope in this place. This place is all going to pass away. Your home is somewhere else. It's a better country you wait for. How are you going to get there? Through the God of heaven. Because of what Christ has done and accomplished. That's where you put your trust. You trust in this mess. This is a disaster. But Christ will accomplish what he's promised you. That's where you put your trust. Can this world truly meet your needs? There are many people today that will say that. They run around and they clamor for it. They seek to do it, much like the people in Hosea's day. And they just keep looking and looking and looking and looking and looking. But only the God of heaven can truly meet the needs that you have. Why? Because he knows what those are. Infinitely wise as he is. He knows what you need. And he will give you what you need. He won't ever shortchange you in the needs that you have. Even when we don't recognize it, even when we don't acknowledge it, even when we're not thankful for it, he's still doing it. Just like he did for them here, even though they didn't know it. He does it for us. But when we detect idolatry, when we detect the fact that we've put Jesus ninth on the list of things of importance, what do we do with this information? Well, we don't do what these people did. We don't persist in it. We turn away from it. We confess it. We repent of it. We say, Father, I recognize that I have really I've supplanted your right to rule and reign in my life in every corner, every sphere of my existence, whether young or old. And I long and need your Spirit's help that I might always keep you in the center of everything I do. Come what may, I will not give my emotions, my affections, I will not give credit to any single thing in this world. To you only will I give praise. And you turn away from it. And here's the thing. God forgives every time. There's never a time when we turn away from idolatry, repent in such a humble manner, and God says, ah, I've heard that all before. I've heard it so many times. Nope. God receives you. Why? Because you're His. 
they, these people here were his. And because they are his, he shows his care, even in the face of their wicked idolatry. Notice what he says there in verse 6. Therefore, hmm, you know what that means. I'm not going to say it. In light of all of this mess, here's what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. Because of my love for you, because of my care for you, because of my great compassion that can never end, I'm going to hedge you in. I'm going to prevent you, as it were. I'm going to prevent you from doing what you desire to do, that you might not sin against me. God hedges in his people. He restrains their sin so that they do not act as badly as they possibly can. Imagine if God stopped doing that to you. Imagine if God did not hedge you in every single day. Just exactly what you would, would you look like. Look, I'm going to tell you, I'll just be candid with you. You're not that good. Sin is awful. And if God just lets you go, you would commit some of the most vilest things that the world has ever known. God hedges you in. He hedges these people in that they might not become as evil as their hearts are prone to be. Oh, yes, they're bad. Yes, they're sinning. But God restrains their sin that He might not annihilate them from the face of the earth. Why does He do that? Why doesn't he just destroy them? Well, for the very same reasons he didn't destroy our first parents when they sinned against God in the garden, but instead offered to them that proto-evangelion, that first gospel of hope. I'm going to hedge you in. I'm going to show you my eternal love. I'm going to demonstrate that love in giving to you Christ. I'm not going to pro- I'm proving my love for you by giving you Christ. I'm going to hedge you in. He does it because of his love for his people. He restrains out of his covenant love and faithfulness to a wandering people. Notice how many times in this passage the use of the I, the pronoun I is used. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I I I I it's everywhere. God's faithfulness remains even in the face of their sin, their Baal worship, their hard hearts, the blackness of their own mind, their idolatry. But he does it through the means of discipline. Those whom God loves, he disciplines. Every parent in this room knows what that means. I don't need to draw you a picture. You don't discipline your children because you hate them. You do it because you love them. God loves his people. And sometimes he's got to spank them. Sometimes he's got to toss them in a corner with a dunce cap on their head. Sometimes he does that. He hedges them in. He tells them of his kindness to them. And it was he who gave them all of these wonderful things. And he extends to them a hope 
through the means of discipline. In verse 9, I will take back my grain in its time, my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. This is discipline. He's going to expose them that they might turn away from their idolatry. They eventually do. It took years in the patience of God as he restored the northern kingdom in part as they came back into the land. But he does it through discipline. We tend to see discipline as negative, and sometimes it can be. I mean, i got to tell you, I didn't exactly say, oh, great, I can't wait for my dad to get the belt out again, which was often. But now that I'm older, I look back and I say, I'm thankful my parents disciplined me. The people of God are thankful that God disciplined them. Why? Because then they'd be lost forever. And so he disciplines them. But always remember that God's discipline is designed to bring repentance from the offending sinner. So God shows in this serious indictment of their idolatry, he shows the hope that he lays before them, that he will indeed recover them, even though he will punish them. Verse 13 For the feast days of the Baals, this idolatry that's present in their midst when they burned offerings to them. I mean, it can't get much worse. But he will restore. And he does it through his loving discipline to his people. So when you are, when you find yourself disciplined to the Lord, Hebrews 12, don't resist it. Because the longer you resist it, the longer it's going to remain. Because God can do no other. Why? Because of His love for you. That's why. He has to do that. Yes, I just said God has to do something. Yes, God has to do that because God is a God of love for His covenant people. He will remain faithful to you, even if you don't want it. Even if you resist it, even if you turn aside from it, he is not going to give up. He's going to continue to come day after day to woo you back to himself. And so where are you placing your trust? You can place it in the idols of this world. They will never help you. They won't woo you. They won't discipline you when you get out of line. They're not going to fight for you. They're not going to deliver you gloriously to that heavenly rest. They can't save you. Not your money, not your wife or your husband, your children, your job. None of it can do any of those things. Don't place your trust there. Your trust is in the name of the Lord, the living God, who made heaven and earth. If you find that there are Areas in your life that the Lord is putting his finger on. Say, hey, child, you need to get rid of this. This is distracting you from me. Turn aside from it. You will find lasting peace and security there, but not in that trinket that you think is so important. Remember, God is not going to allow you to continue holding on to it. He loves you too much 
to let you turn, get your heart turned aside to the fleeting things of this world. And so through the pen of Hosea, he appeals to the people with strong language, but he reminds them again of his care, his love, his kindness, all undeserved. He reminds you and me this evening that he'll never, ever turn us over to the idols of this world. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your covenant faithfulness to us. We know it's all rooted in that which the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. As you anticipated your son giving his life a ransom for many, indeed, in him, your love was demonstrated. It will never, ever end. You will continue to woo us, love us, care for us, discipline us, put us in the corners, take the dunce cap on our hat, whatever it takes that you might conform us into the image of your Son. And so we pray that you would help us, that we might turn aside from the idols of this world. We might place our hope, our trust, our security in you alone. We ask and pray for Christ's sake. Amen.